0: Welcome to the mini-break, your date podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, March 20th. On today's show, I want to offer my final thoughts on Sunday's Indian Wells and Arizona Tennis Classic Finals. It was a phenomenal Sunday in the tennis world, punctuated by three exceptional matches. Of course, the day started with Elena Rabakina getting a little bit of revenge for herself. Obviously, Arena Sabalenka knocked her off earlier this season in the Australian Open final. This time, it was Rabakina returning the favor. Straight set win over Sabalenka to capture the Indian Wells crown. We already knew what Rabakina was capable of. She won Wimbledon last summer. She made another slam final here to start the year. But I think more broadly, there's a pretty clear-cut tier one of players emerging, not just on the WTA tour, but on the ATP tour as well. And Obviously, to watch what Carlos Alcaraz did over the course of Championship Weekend, his victory in straight sets over Sinner was perhaps surpassed given how dominant he was in the final against Daniil Medvedev. And that center Alcarez match featured some of, if not the best tennis I have seen throughout the course of this 2023 ATP season. But to see Carlos Alcarez just so tactically dominate Daniil Medvedev throughout the course of the match, Medvedev put up his typical fight. In the end, Carlos Alcarez was too much. You look at the statistics, again, Alcarez pretty clearly A tier, I mean, there's no debate. I don't know why I say pretty clearly. He's a tier one guy. I think there are a couple of others in the mix as well. We'll get into that discussion briefly here today. I know it's one we've had quite frequently on our podcasts of late, but two exceptional Indian Wells finals. Again, Rabakina over Sabalenka, Alcaraz over Medvedev. I want to break both of those down on today's show. and Then I want to offer my final thoughts on what was a spectacular inaugural ATP 175 event at the Arizona Tennis Classic. A massive thank you to Johnny Levine, the entire Phoenix, uh, the entire team, excuse me, in Phoenix working this Arizona Tennis Classic event because uh, we have never been treated better here at Crack Rackets. Certainly others have treated us as well, but again, never have we been treated better to have the opportunity to speak with so many of the players who have the opportunity to, again, have an intimate look at everything that unfolded throughout the course of the week. We're immensely grateful for that opportunity. If you missed any of our coverage, you can catch up on it all on our website, CrackRackets.com or on our various podcasts. I had the chance to sit down with so many of these spectacular players throughout the course of the week. Spectacular is a word I am overusing here to start today's podcast. I apologize for the hyperbole. Perhaps it's the fatigue setting in as we have been on the road. I flew back, got in last night, 1 a.m., on my flight shout out to super producer Daniel Westoff for picking me up from the airport that's why he remains the best in business anyways the Arizona tennis classic was phenomenal we got the chance to speak with champion Nuno Borges for 20 minutes we got to speak with our guy Alexander Kavasovich, who of course is on the precipice of making his top 100 debut we talked with finalist Alexander Shevchenko top 75 player in the world Michael Emer and so many more if you missed any of those interviews they're all available over on the Cracked Interviews Podcast feed. We'll have videos of them up on our Cracked Rackets YouTube channel over the next few days as well. So if you want to watch them, you can do so. If you want to just listen to them now, again, Cracked Interviews Podcast is the place for you. Of course, we talked about the Arizona Tennis Classic all last week on this show, but I do have to offer some final thoughts on Nuno Borges because obviously he's a guy we've known for a while here at Cracked Rackets. Our found you know, we founded Cracked Rackets in August 2017. That was right in the thick of Nuno's college tennis career. And, you know, 2018, 2019, he wins back-to-back two of his three SEC Player of the Year awards. He makes an NCAA singles final in 2019. And now he's a top 75 player in the world. You're darn right. I have some thoughts on how he's gotten there, what he does so well, why we need to watch Alexander Shevchenko moving forward as well. And again— some final thoughts on the Arizona Tennis Classic. So all of that in store for all of you listeners here on today's show. I'll try to be efficient with my word choice. I don't think it's going to be the longest podcast because got to reset, got to refocus, get everything set for our coverage of the 2023 Miami Open, another 1000 level event on the tennis calendar approaching qualifying, got underway here today on Monday. And let me just say here from the start before I forget, because it's inevitable that I will. Will. Nuno Borges won his match, probably finished around I don't know, we'll be generous and say 8:45 p.m. Eastern Time yesterday. He was on court today around 4 p.m. Eastern Time playing his first round qualifying match at Miami. He's the top seed in qualies. He took on Steve Johnson. He beat him 4 and 4. I mean, Shout out to Nuno Borges Westoff give me a round of applause for that effort that is truly remarkable and you know, speaks to the fact that the tennis world never sleeps. The calendar never never stops. Excuse me, I apparently need to learn how to speak better English so that I can better reflect everything that's going on on this nonstop world that is tennis. Uh, but shout out, of course, to Nuno Borges for that victory. Shout out to the Arizona Tennis Classic, which, along with Indian Wells, will be covered today. Of course, as always, one other shout out has to go to all of you listeners who tune in day in day out. We're immensely grateful for that fact. We're also immensely grateful. For the support we get from our friends at Tennis Point, you all know the deal, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. All right. Let's go chronologically through Sunday's matches. We'll start with the Indian Wells women's final. Was it the highest quality tennis from start to finish? No, there was certainly some shakiness in Elena Rybakina's 7-6, 6-4 victory over Arena Sabalenka. Now, you all know here at Cracked Rackets, we take joy, though— in the chaos of those moments. And certainly for Arena Sablanca, given how strong she has started this season, not just from the 30,000 foot view, but more particularly, she had seemed to finally put behind her the service yips that plagued her so dearly throughout the course of the 2022 season. To see her, you know, fire 10 double faults throughout the course of the match, so many of those coming in critical junctures down the home stretch of the first set. Yes, there was some disjointed tennis throughout the course of this match, but I mean, if you can't take joy in the drama of a 13-11 first set breaker, even if the tennis isn't necessarily the highest possible level... You're not listening to this show. I know I don't have to make this case to all of you listeners. And to watch Arena Sabalenka, the forehand she bunted down on at six all in the breaker to set up her set point four six seven. to watch her just swing so thoroughly and so aggressively through the court, regardless of the error she had been plagued by, you know, that's what it's all about. And to watch rabakana just steadily continue, you know, again— Attack the lines, try to take the ball on the short hop. Obviously, first serves were essential in this match because both players so aggressive on the return of serve. And, you know, Elena Rabakina's ability to time her return of the arena, Sabalenka, second serve, or as Sabalenka tried to just roll in serves because she wasn't confident in her form. Rybakina's ability to take those balls on the rise The backhand cross court in particular on the rise return was maybe the best return she hit throughout the day, particularly on that ad side. I thought she just was able to take control uh, throughout the course of multiple Arena Sabalenka service games. And, you know, again, there were only five breaks of serve in this match. I say only five. I guess it was a straight set match. But These are two of the 10 best servers on the WTA Tour. There was a lot of first-strike tennis, and you know, for Sabalenka to take the early break in set number one, for her to do so behind the back of just a thunderous forehand return winner where you're just like, "Uh uh-oh, Sabalenka's clicking on all cylinders. If she's reading the Rabakina serve this well already with how well she has been serving, you feel like this one's in the books, but no, Rabakina comes right back to get that break of serve back and you know again i i keep using the word disjointed there was no clear cut rhythm there was no clear cut pattern no definitive thing i think either of these players did repeatedly to gain an advantage on one another now that makes sense given both of these players are disruptors in their game style obviously card can, uh, game styles obviously card carrying members of serena williams power tennis country club they play big. They take their opportunities. I thought both moved pretty darn well. And this was from her semifinal match, but a testament to Arena Sablanka. I made the claim yesterday that I think she's the best athlete on the WTA Tour, or certainly in the conversation with a combination of power, speed, fluidity against Sakari, 6 2 4 2 Love 15, because I was going back and catching up on the highlights. 6 2 4 2 Love 15. She hits this on the run forehand passing shot. My coach used to call it a hook shot where you hook it around the alley back into the court. She hits this on-the-run hook shot that maybe, again, like four players in the world can hit on the full sprint with that sort of depth, pace, and action on the ball you know, Again, that's why I don't want to focus too much on the final here today, and I do want to take more of a 30,000-foot view, because credit to Elena Rybakina, She was the steadier of the two power tennis players on the day, and credit to Sabalenka, who goes down 5-2, gets a break back, holds serve, asks the question of Rybakina, who does then manage to serve things out, and I believe she landed three—excuse uh, me, three of five—no, uh, it was a six-point game. I think it was four of six. That's what it was, first serves to ultimately—and she won all four points that she made her first serves in that final game to clinch the match. Robachna played good tennis. The technique is flawless. She has that ability to absorb some of the pace that Sabalenka throws her way. Now, again, because Robachna hits a heavier ball, sometimes that ball gets into the big backswing of Arena Sabalenka. You could tell the Arena Sabalenka forehand was misfiring more in the final than I thought it had all week long. And that's a testament to Elena Robachna who, again, Seven six six four win. She captures the Indian Wells titles. You look for Elena Rabakana now in her career. Let's keep in mind, doesn't turn 24 years old until the middle of June. She has now won four different titles on the WTA Tour. They've come in Bucharest, Hobart, Wimbledon, and now Indian Wells. 12 finals total in her career, not too shabby either. She's up to a new career high, number seven in the WTA rankings. If you included Wimbledon points, she would be third in the WTA rankings. This all makes sense. You look at the advanced analytics, tennis abstracts, ELO ratings, which just a reminder because I know I've referenced them, but I don't think I've explained them in a while to you listeners what the difference between the ELO ratings and the WTA rankings. The WTA rankings reward points based on the caliber of the event and how far you reach in an event, right? So a quarterfinal win at Indian Wells over the number 50 player in the world is more valuable than a quarterfinal win at charleston over the number 12 player in the world according to the wta rankings that's not the case with the elo ratings elo ratings measure the ranking of who you play what the score line is how close those matches are shout out to of course jeff sackman for figuring out how best to quantify or qualify elo ratings with his formulas you look at the ELO ratings right now, overall ELO. So this isn't just, you know, this measures your uh, matches uh, over the course, not just the last 52 weeks, but again, over the course of, or excuse me, over the course of the last 52 weeks, as well as what you've done in the past. Uh, the overall top three, excuse me, that was not the best rank. Let's, let's try that one more time, stuff. Give me the rewind sound effect, please. Overall ELO ratings measure... With more value, what you've done in the last 52 weeks, but they also quantify what you've done throughout the course of your career. Now we'll get to the 2023 results, specific Elo ratings, in a second. But to this 30,000 foot view of a tier one is clearly forming. Who are your top three overall Elo rating players right now? One, Sviantek. Two, Sabalenka. Three is Rabakina. That makes a lot of sense. And then you have a little bit of a dip and you get to the Halops and Pagula's, Bencic, Zbier, Goff. Those are all the players with a 2,000 or higher level ELO rating. That feels like the clear-cut top eight right now on the WTA Tour. And if you want to swap Zbier with Krejcikova, I'm totally fine with that. Krechikova 11th in overall ELO rating, but of course you want to look 2023 specific results. Krechikova currently sits fourth behind Rabakina, who's first, Sabalenka second, Svantec third. That makes a lot of sense to me as well. And by the way, the 2023 specific ELO ratings, top eight, Rabakina one, Sabalenka two, Svantec three, Kretchikova four. Is that where tier two begins or tier one ends? I'll leave that up to you. The listener I personally would include Barbara Krachikova in my tier one right now she's a French Open champion she won the title obviously in Dubai earlier this season she won the title in Ostrava at the end of last year when she's been healthy over the last two seasons she's been unequivocally a top five caliber player in the world she's one of eight WTA players right now who ranks top 25 in both hold and break percentage over the course of the last 52 weeks She's also beaten Iga twice in finals. She's beaten Sabalenka three sets Dubai. Now, I know Sabalenka just got her at Indian Wells, but that was also a three-set match. You know, some will make the argument if you include Krejcikova, don't you have to include Pagula? Pagula doesn't have the Tier 1 titles and the resume that Krejcikova has to, I think, bump her into that group. I'm going to put Krejcikova as the bottom of my Tier 1. Now I think there's a gap in tier one within tier one, excuse me, between Sviantek, Sabalenka, Rabakina, and Krejčikova. But I have too much respect for Krejčikova to exclude her from that tier one caliber because her best has proven she can beat the best in the world and win a title. That's your. I think that's the pretty clear cut tier four. I don't think that's going to be a hot take for many of you listeners to hear. And I know that's a conversation that's been going around tennis Twitter with more or highlighted around Tennis Twitter of late. It's a conversation we've been having for a while here. I think it's solidified. I I think that's what you come out of right now. You know, again, we'll make the definitive Tier 1 rankings. That's a promise to all of you listeners. As soon as Miami's done, we'll do our tiers heading into the clay court season. But that's your pretty clear-cut Tier 1. And one more statistic, I suppose, I would include just to Punctuate the list. You look at the players who have the most top 20 victories over the course of the last 52 weeks. And again, in this era, with the depth that we see on the WTA Tour, I do think top 20 is a better approximation than top 10 in terms of quality of victories, particularly because there's so much volatility between like seven and 17 in the WTA rankings. That's why I use top 20 and so many of those players, tier two, tier three, it's indistinguishable. sviantek has got 21 top 20 wins over her last 52 weeks. She's 21 and three, by the way, which remains remarkable. Robocca in a second, 15 and 9 overall against top 20 opponents. That's a remarkable number over a 52 week stretch. Sabalenka third at 13 and 8. The other players with 10 plus victories over top 20 opponents. Garcia, Haddad Maya have 10. Sakari has 11. Yeah, I mean I mean again, you've got some other Pagula's got nine for what it's worth. It's not like she's far off. Bencic has nine. Kretchikova has nine. The the big outlier here is Coco Goff who's not in the mix. Goff five and fifteen against top twenty opponents, though, for what it's worth. Again, those five victories are still a top twelve number on the WTA tour. If you make it top ten victories, Shiontek's got thirteen, Sablanka Garcia have eight, Rabakina has five. I like the top twenty metric better as a again approximation of when going up against the best, who is beating the best with the most frequent? Uh, see, obviously, over the past year, the answer to that question is still Iga. But obviously, with given, excuse me, their runs of late, Sabalenka, Rebokina have to be included in that conversation. Of course, you look now for, uh, again, Elena Rybakina here to start her 2023 season. She's 16-4 and overall. You know, the losses, three sets to Kostyuk, straight sets Kvitova, but those are the first two weeks of the season. She goes from there to making the final of Australia, beating Iga Astapenko-Collins and Azarenka, you know, before the three-set loss to uh, Sabalenka. She loses in three to Haddad Maya, had to pull out of the Dubai Round of sixteen against Goff, but got wins there over Boshkova and Andrescu and now wins Indian Wells. Yeah, that's a player who should be top ten in the world, who with the Wimbledon points would again be third in the world. That feels about right. And that's where all the advanced metrics have her as well. Now, as for Arena Sabalenka, still off to an electric start. You know, seventeen and two overall this season. She's holding serve a career high eighty five point nine percent of the time, which would be the highest metric I had ever seen in a single season over the course of WTA Tour history. She's also breaking serve a career high thirty nine point three percent of the time. Now it's only a nineteen match sample size, but you know it's career highs across the board. 10.5% percentage. That would be, I believe, first on the WTA tour right now in 2023. Over her last 52 weeks, she currently ranks sixth at 7.6%. She's also cut the double fault percentage, not in half, but from 6.2, uh, excuse me, from 10.4 to 6.5. It's a percent below her career average. Obviously, we saw the yips in the finals, but she's getting significantly better in that category. And again, she's still holding serve at a career, a WTA-defining rate through 19 matches. Did she play her best? No. Are the yips emerging concerning? Not particularly. Did you watch the rest of the tournament where she 2-3'd and Zachary, hit her off the court? Everything was on her terms. 4-0 golf. Again, her pace overwhelmed the golf forehand. She's ripping the return as cleanly as she ever has. She got the three-set victory over krechikova She had set points in the first set. Obviously, it's a tough one for her to drop, but it was a win. Like with the semifinals, we had. I said this a couple of days ago: Rebokina, Sviantek, Sakari, Sabalenka. If Sakari would have won it, that would have been a little bit surprising for sure. Outside of that. You knew it was going to be close. It was going to come down to a few things. Who executed better? Rabakina executed better on the day. That's a testament to her more than anything else. Again, up to a new career high, number seven in the world. By the way, in the top 10 right now, six career highs. Iga, obviously, at that career high at number one. Sabalenka at her career high at two. Pagula at her career high at three. Garcia at her career high at four. Rabakina at her career high at seven. Kasikina at her career high at eight a lot of players in their prime, a lot playing their best tennis. The quality of the field has never been better. This is a really fun, I think, four-year stretch maybe because Svantec 21, Sabalenka 24, Rabakina 23, Goff obviously 19, so you have a little bit longer there. But you know, again, a lot of players are going to be at the peaks of their powers over the course of these next four years. And it's going to be really fun to watch them do battle because, yes, Sabalenka and have the sort of weapons that as good as Iga is, she can absolutely beat them on Iga's best day. And she wasn't at her best day. She talked about the rib injury. You could see it was a little bit more difficult for her in and out of corners. Of course, the pace of Rabakina will do that to you. I also just think, and I said this before, but I'll say it again. The top spin, Rabakana, or excuse me, Sviantek plays with that ball, sits up in Rabakana's strike zone. It's a good matchup for Rabakana, or about as good of a matchup as Iga Sviantek can be for anyone. It's one to watch. Like when Rabakana plays her best, she can, you know, Iga needs her best to beat her. And that is not a plot point we had from anyone during the 2022 season. And by the way, it's a plot point you'd expect when a 23-year-old is turning 24, has now made a couple of slam finals and is finding that next level of confidence. And it's better for the WTA Tour for there to be multiple players capable of playing Tier 1 tennis. And if you have eyes, you saw exceptional Tier 1 tennis throughout the Indian Wells women's singles draw. So those are my final thoughts as it relates to Indian well, uh, the Indian Wells women's singles event To move on to the Indian Wells men's singles event, look, I don't want to make this just a Carlos Alcaraz, you know, uh, a Carlos Alcaraz celebration. I don't want to make this just me raving on it. What am I going to tell you about Alcaraz that you didn't see with your eyes? Like Andy Zodin, who joined me on the podcast yesterday, brought up the point of. Is Carlos Alcaraz playing the best tennis that we have ever seen out of anyone in history? Not that he's the greatest of all time, but is the tennis he's currently playing the highest level we've ever seen? I'm not ready to go there because I remember 2015 Novak, obviously Rafa, Federer, what they were able to do at the peaks of their powers while I think there's a degree of physicality needed in 2023 that perhaps wasn't needed as frequently in earlier years on the ATP Tour, and by the way, with the passage of time, every sport should get better and should continue to evolve. Do I think Carlos Alcaraz is the evolution of tennis epitomized in one player? Absolutely. The physicality, the aggression, the weapons he possesses, the, the RPM and pace he's able to generate out of his corners with the new technology available in rackets, the touch he displays. There is nothing on a tennis court. Carlos Alcaraz can't do when healthy. Absolutely nothing. He's that good. I don't know how else to say it. I mean, obviously, it's another Masters title for him now. It's his first hardcourt event of the year. He's coming off of a hamstring injury uh, that he sustained two weeks prior, and he just casually rips off victories over Greek Spore. FAA, Sinner, Medvedev, doesn't drop a set on his way to this Indian Wells title, retakes the number one position in the world, and It's laughable. It really is. I I don't know what else to say. There were times when Carlos Alcaraz, I mean, first of all, let's just start with the highlight reel shot. And it's not the one you're going to... You know, obviously the point he played against Sinner, the top spin lob he hits after, you know landing the high backhand volley centers, able to push forward, et cetera, et cetera. That topspin lob, the physicality it took to come up with that shot. Of course, that's the shot you're going to remember from the tournament. But can we just talk for a second about 6-3, deuce? What does Carlos Alcaraz do? He serves in volleys, slice serve out wide, Medvedev gets a clean whack on the forehand cross court, and he hit it with pace, he hit it with spin, he kept it low. Carlos Alcaraz is not 6'6", Carlos Alcaraz is not 6'4", he's what, 6'6", six 6'1", six maybe 6'2", and he just hits a perfect first stretch forehand volley, perfectly in stride, perfectly in, st- in sync, with perfect touch. Sets up the match point. I mean, again, Alcaraz's ability to overwhelm the Medvedev forehand with the pace, the heaviness of his ball. And watching the lower camera angle that was sometimes provided at this Indian Wells event, it looks to me like Alcaraz is trying to drive through his backhand more, that he's extending through that shot as opposed to following up over his shoulder as quickly as he once did to try and get better depth, better length on the ball. I'll tell you what, worked all week for Carlos Alcaraz, and it was just that ability, you know, Medvedev, it was really difficult for Medvedev to hurt Carlos Alcaraz in any sort of fashion. Medvedev had to hit down, and, you know, if you're watching the court, there was a strong breeze moving from right to left on the court, and so... You know, particularly when Medvedev was on the near side of the camera, it was really hard for him because he wants to be opening up the court with his inside-out forehand. He wants to yank you over before he pulls the trigger on the inside-in. It was really hard for him to do that given the wind, given the slowness of the court, and given Alcarez's ability to drive his backhand with depth to neutralize whatever it was Medvedev tried to do. And then if Medvedev didn't get good depth on his inside-in forehand, now Alcarez gets a free swing at a forehand, and that ball was at Medvedev's feet. And when you, Medved- when you can jam the Medvedev forehand with elite pace, he'll leave the ball short. Can't leave the ball short against Carlos Alcaraz, who will employ the drop shots. I already mentioned his ability to volley. His inside-out forehand is only surpassed by the lethality, the lethalness, sorry, my brain is broken. The lethalness of his inside and forehand, I've said it before, I'll say it again, the most dangerous thing in the world right now is Carlos Alvarez with time on the outside of the court because he is capable of doing anything with that ball. He fights. He scraps. He looks three to five pounds stronger every time I see him. He has chest muscles now. He's 19 years old. It's just remarkable, and again, how well he holds his ground he still plays exceptional defense, and yet he doesn't need to do it. There, again, in modern ATP history, or 21st century ATP, there are two teenagers who stand out above the rest. Rafa, who Alcarez still has a long ass, you know, again, Alcarez has three more months, so just the sample size, it's not going to be big enough to match what Rafa did. But it's Rafa and Alcaraz. They're in a conversation on their own in terms of teenage success on the ATP tour, certainly in the 21st century. And I mean, again, you look for Carlos Alcaraz now, a ridiculous, Ridiculous, 59 and 12. He's won 83% of his matches over his last 52 weeks. And I've said it before. I've studied the great primes. The best three to five-year stretches in ATP Tour history. You had Djokovic, Federer, Nadal, who flirted with winning from 88% to 92% of their matches. He's not there yet. But that next tier, Sampras, Agassi, McEnroe – I don't want to say Prime Borg because Prime Borg was actually closer to the Federer, Djokovic, Nadal tier than anyone else. But the courier first four-year stretch, you know, the great stretches in time, obviously. Elkarez is having one of the – I mean he's only a year into it. But he's on that sort of pit the Edberg stretches, the Lendl stretches, where you're winning 85% of your matches. And, you know, again, you look for Alcaraz over this stretch of time. He's played first matches at 17 different events. He's made the quarterfinals of 13 of 17, semifinals 10 of 17. He's won titles at 6 of 17. I'm telling you, I've studied the primes, so you don't have to. He's not in the elite of the elite tier one. It, it's not his Djokovic 2015 or Djokovic 2011 or Nadal 2010 or Federer 05-08 or 0408, whatever the run was. It's not the duration of that yet. But do you know how many guys statistically get to on track for that ever in their lives? Like seven. And Elkarez is on that track. We're allowed to have fun with that fact while also remaining patient and not expecting him to have to win 23 slam titles and start sweeping golden slams right away. He's 19 freaking years old. He's just so clearly on the path. The numbers say it more abundantly. The eyes say it. It's a pleasure to watch him healthy. We have another superstar in our sport. And, you know, again, Djokovic leads the ATP Tour right now in top 20 victories over the last 52 weeks. He has 24. Next up is Alcaraz with 18. You then have Tsitsipas, 17. Medvedev, 14. Kasparud with 12 to round out your top five. You want to do top 10 wins. Only two guys have double digits. Djokovic, 14 and 4 against the top 10 over his last 52 weeks. Alcaraz, 10 and 3. I mean, 10 and 3 over his last 52 weeks, against top 10 opponents. You want to go to the advanced metrics? I'm throwing out Chilich because it's like six matches that are counted for him, and it's the six matches he, you know, five and one to get to the French Open semifinals last year. Three guys, top 15 in both hold and break percentage right now on the ATP Tour. Djokovic and Medvedev rank top 10 in both. Alcaraz is top 15 in both. That's your tier one. And I know we're getting onto the clay courts, and some of you may want to swap Medvedev for Tsitsipas as the clay court placeholder. I'm comfortable saying Yannick Sinner is on the precipice of that. He's the top of Tier 2 right now, needs to get to a big final again to firmly cement himself in Tier 1 here in 2023. Now, I have Sinner in Tier 1 moving forward. He, I feel very confident he's going to win a slam. In this decade, he came, you know, again, you look at the career head to head now with Alcaraz for Yannick Sinner. He's what, overall, I think it's three and three, no, two and four overall now in the career head to head, but beat him Matt Wimbledon and an UMAG final last year on clay. You know, Alcarez Sinner was broken twice in his match against Alcaraz. He got that break back in the first set. He has the weapons to push Alcaraz off the baseline. He kind of likes the Alcaraz heavy topspin into his forehand because then he can't bunt down on it, drive through it with that much more ease. It's my favorite matchup on the ATP Tour right now. And now the guy's 22 years old, they've already played six times. It has all the makings of the next great rivalry. I am very excited to watch Sinner Alcaraz moving forward. I will say again, this surface, in terms of Alcaraz Medvedev, it's on a hard court. Obviously, it's slower. It's higher bouncing. And shout out to Didil Medvedev, who was so funny in his post-match press conference or post-match speech, excuse me, saying, talking about his thanking the court, saying we've had a toxic relationship. But I got to the final here, and I appreciate your help in doing that. You know, having fun with it. That's all we ask these players to do. Have fun with the drama, with the joy. Make it an entertainment, a spectacle, and be in on the joke. And it's very clear Daniil Medvedev is in on the joke. And that's, the, that's all we can ask for from these players. So shout out to Medvedev for having fun with it. Again, the issue is Alcaraz has the weapons to jam the Medvedev forehand. He Is capable of moving forward into the court and taking advantage of Medvedev's defensive court positioning, particularly on the return of serve. And as we saw for Carlos Alcaraz against Daniil Medvedev, he won uh, 81% of his first serve points and did not face a break point. Won that match in an hour 10. It was a tough matchup on a tough surface. Quicker indoors when his serve can jam Alcaraz a little bit more when his forehand—it's a little bit easier for him to hit forehand inside-out through the court because that forehand inside-out pattern did emerge for Medvedev. He was able to work his way into courts, uh, work his way into points. He just was unable to finish points against Alcarez on this surface in particular. It wasn't that he wasn't competitive. He just lacked that finishing shot on this surface. I want to see the matchup again on something a little bit quicker uh, but certainly, again, you see some tactical disadvantages for Medvedev exploited by Alcaraz throughout the course of the match. Still, Medvedev just ripped off a 19 1 four tournament stretch where he earned victories over, you know, uh, Djokovic, Rublev, Felix Twice, Sinner, Zverev, Davidovich Fokina. Tiafo, who shout out to making me look good and being the last American uh, man standing at Indian Wells. He's now up to a new career high, number 14 in the live rankings. The physicality was immense. We talked about it yesterday with Andy. His ability to fight off the match points were impressive, and I mean, right now, career highs in the men's rankings. Djokovic is at one. That's a career high. Or no, that's not right. Oh, yeah, because the Miami points just came off of the live rankings. So, Djokovic goes back up to one. Alcaraz is at two, even though he's at one in the current ATP rankings. Tsitsipas is at his career high of three. Felix is at his career high of six. Runa's at his career high of eight. Tiafo's at his career high of 14. And, you know, again, Sinner's one off his career high at 10. Fritz... At nine, he's four off his career high. Runa at seven, he's two off his career high. Uh, Rublev, excuse me. All these guys are in the primes of their career. Again, they're all starting to play their best tennis. Yes, a hierarchy is forming. Djokovic, Alcaraz, I still think Medvedev on a hard court as well. Those are the guys to beat right now, but... Man, it was a really fun championship weekend. Sinner, Alcaraz. You know, again, uh, Tiafo fought off seven match points against Medvedev. Forces a second set breaker, and yet that match was the undercard as Alcaraz Sinner did deliver some of the highest quality tennis we have seen this season. We're in a really fun spot at the top of the ATP Tour, and obviously we're ready to turn the page towards another high-level event that masters 1,000 or just 1,000-level action, I suppose, in Miami. I will be back here tomorrow with two first-time guests here at Cracked Rackets. Whether they're both tomorrow, we spread them out Tuesday, Wednesday, that remains to be determined, but it's going to be fun. We're going to have some fun this week. I think all of you listeners are going to enjoy who we bring onto to our show. Of course, before we go, though, got to offer some final thoughts on the Arizona Tennis Classic and Nuno Borges, right? I mean, again, I am one of the a card member, card member holding, a uh, card holding members. That's how you say that in English. I'm a card holding member, and one of the founders of NDN Club. Never doubt Nuno. I watched it in college. He was never the most athletic. Like it wasn't the explosion, it wasn't the twitchiness, but he was always better than you at tennis. His kick serve has been a joke since he walked. You know, probably his entire life, but. That ability to open up so much court space for him to hit the plus one forehand, his racket speed on the forehand elite. You know, again, if he gets his hands on the ball, if that ball's going service line or deeper, he's going to put that ball where he wants it to go. You also just start to play at his pace because he's the one neutralizing your pace. He's the one who decides it's time for me to amp up my forehand. And, you know, again, Borges does such a good job of moving the ball, spreading the court, as Bradley Klon always likes to say. I mean, you look for Borges this week, wins over Stroof, Popperin, guys with big weapons, he out-physicals, Shevchenko, Safilin, Schwartzman, five very different sort of matchups, five equally impressive victories, and... Look, for qualifier Alexander Shevchenko, the 22 year old up to a new career high, number 101 in the live rankings. 51 victories for him over la- his last 52 weeks. He's now made three different challenger finals, but nine different challenger quarterfinals during this stretch of time. 22 year old's the real deal. He has the physicality, he has the tenacity. Boy, did he earn some impressive wins throughout the course of the week as well, getting victories over Monfils, hustler Barrettini, and Hallease, all top 100 players in the wins over Barrettini and Monfils, particularly mentally strenuous and, you know, again, taxing and, you know, again, wins the first set against Nuno. The quality of play through the first nine games of the match was top 50 tennis. It was just... Again, so difficult on those slow, gritty courts in Phoenix for either guy to gain much traction. Who was going to be bolder in the bigger moments? And Nuno's confidence in moving forward behind his forehand and changing direction with that ball, I thought that was the biggest difference. And clearly on this surface, you're just going to inherently have a little bit more time. But man, Nuno was everywhere. You all saw the ATP challenger shot of the day, the little flick cross court Nuno hit in that first set, the re-drop drop shot. It was unbelievable, and he did—sorry, Wes, he did like that all week. Like, it was just—his ability to muck things up against Popperin and take away the Popperin big forehand, unless Alexi Popperin landed a first serve, and he landed a lot of first serves, but short of him doing that, everything in that Nuno match uh, was—his match against Nuno in the quarterfinals was on Nuno's terms. Similarly, again, if Nuno gets his hands on the ball, the returns go in service line or deeper. And he did just enough with that return to neutralize Jan-Leonard Struff's ability to play first strike. And then Nuno kept first pace, not necessarily with his pace, but with his variety, with how well he mixed up his spots. He just has the rhythm of a top 75 player. Everything goes at Nuno's speed. Nothing is too overwhelming for him. He manages to make some adjustments. Again, slower surface is always going to be beneficial for the twenty uh, now 26-year-old, but Top 68 in the world. I mean, he's number 60 in the world. New career high. Biggest title of his career. He's made over $100,000. It's like $150,000 this year. That's good freaking money. You know, again, you're making a living. He's going to play three more slams this year. He's going to make north of 350 grand. you are a professional tennis player. Nuno freaking Borges. Three-time SEC player of the year. 2019 NCAA finalist. I mean, again... There's, I think, 11 or 12 top 100 ATP players with college tennis ties in the singles rankings right now. Kovacevic is right on the precipice as well, obviously, with guys like Shelton, Wolf, have Nori have all done to break through in their respective ways over the past two and a half years. Nuno's on the rise. I'm obviously not forgetting about Nakashima. There's a lot of guys I can mention here. I'm not going to go through them all, but... God, was it fun to watch Nuno play. And again, he's, he's gotten stronger. He looks physically – I mean he's just not the same person he was in college. He looks like a professional athlete now. We saw that manifest itself with his results on court. Uh, nicest guy in the world you'll meet as well. Doesn't have a bad thing to say about anyone. Is always goofing around and laughing. There's an innocence about Nuno. Like he's just a good guy. And, of course, we had the chance to chat with him over on the Cracked Interviews podcast. I would implore all of you to go listen to it. But, man, credit to Nuno – Credit to Shevchenko, really nice kid as well. And we got the chance to sit down with him. You could tell how, you know, he was just enjoying the moment, soaking it up, relishing the opportunity to play against the best of the world, to test his game, because you can just see the determination. Didn't matter if it was doubleheaders. Didn't matter if the crowd was against him. Didn't matter what the scoreboard was. We got the same effort from Alexander Shevchenko every point of every match we saw this week in Phoenix, 101 in the world. Keep your eye on the 22 year old. But with all that said, those are my final thoughts on all things Indian Wells and Phoenix. Of course, a shout out again to Johnny Levine, the entire Arizona Tennis Classic team, Andy Zodin, tournament director, or ran the show in Anna. I apologize. I don't know her last name, but she was so accommodating to our Crack Rackets crew. Just everyone on the grounds at the Phoenix Country Club, staff at the Phoenix Country Club as well. They were the best. The players' tolerance of our nonsense. Shout out to all of them. Shout out, of course, as well to our super producer, Daniel Westoff. On the ones and twos has a of an editing job to do day in day out and ran all of our college tennis broadcasts throughout the course of the weekend appreciate everything he does to make the ship go on here at cracked rackets of course a shout out as well to our dear friends at tennis point remember it's tennis-point.com the promo code is cr15 with all of that said for our fantastic super producer daniel westoff our friends at tennis point from all of us here at both cracked rackets and the tennis channel podcast network i'm your host alex gruskin you know what we say that's the break. We'll talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.